0: everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use concept questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a Petes ID Fellow. We are closing out our Febrile series, High School, spelled H-A-I, which are a bundle of episodes about healthcare-associated infections. Make sure to check out the previous three episodes. But to round out the end of the series, I'm here with a different team, so I will quickly introduce them. Our co-host today is Dr. Sam Skideman.
1: Hi, my name is Sam Skideman. I'm a second-year resident at the University of Michigan.
0: I will add that he did create this episode during his busy intern year. Our guest discussing today is Dr. Owen Albin. He is an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Michigan, where he completed medical school residency and his ID fellowship training. Hi, I'm uh, Owen Albin. And so we always pause for a moment in the beginning of the show to ask our culture question because we are a cultured podcast. I was wondering if you guys could share a little piece of culture, something that you have liked recently that brings you joy. Yeah, something I've really gotten into over the last couple of years has been cooking.
1: My wife and I cook a lot of Alice and Roman recipes. We made shrimp scampi the other day. It was great.
2: Highly
0: recommend. This was a busy time to pick up cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Don't <it> <laughs> what about you owen
2: i i also have a uh, food related uh answer so i um i don't even know what to call him. i feel like there has been allison Roman kind of fits the bill there's been this explosion of like food influencers who You know, we're trained in like professional kitchens and then used to be kind of like food writers slash recipe developers for various outlets. But now they just kind of like are... I guess you call them like food influencers now. (laughs) Anyways, uh, I really like this one guy uh, whose name is Kenji Lopez-Alt. Yes, Um, love him. And I recently got uh, two books by him. So one is his new cookbook called The Walk, which really makes we live right next to a good Asian supermarket and it makes cooking actually semi-authentic Asian food accessible for someone like me. Um, and it's also very science forward, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. So it's a it's just a really accessible, cool cookbook to cook from. Um, and then he also wrote a kid's book, uh, and it's called every night is pizza night. And it's, (laughs) It's about a young girl who doesn't ever want to eat anything but pizza, and then she goes to all of her neighbors' houses and tries all of their different cuisines, and she doesn't necessarily like them, but she tries them. And it's just a great book, and it encourages children to be a little bit more adventurous. I don't think it's made any impact on my kid, but uh, (laughs) it's a lot of fun to read. So that, that would be my answer.
0: I love that. So I tried when I first started Fibro because I love cooking, <laughs> to figure out a way to tie in people having to bring a recipe or talk about a recipe <laughs> and then talk about ID. I couldn't make the title; it couldn't swing it. But uh, <laughs> it's
2: a <somewhat> little <laughs> dicey for ID, right? You're really risking yeah,
0: yeah I foodborne bring the pathogens go. and yeah. yeah yeah. Well, today's console question is about VAP, ventilator-associated pneumonia. So I will hand it over to Sam uh, to lead us through the case.
2: Yeah,
1: I will intro a case for you here, Dr. Alvin. So I have a 57-year-old man who's got a history of alcohol-related cirrhosis, and he's being admitted because of alcohol-related pancreatitis uh, and a fall-related subdural hematoma. He's requiring aggressive ICU supportive care for distributive shock, including need for intubation due to respiratory failure. He's intubated for three days and on rest... Un- Ventilator day three, he develops a new fever to 38.2 degrees Celsius. His labs are significant for a leukocytosis to 12.4, but that's been stable over the past two days. A procalcitonin is drawn and it's 0.5, and there's been no change in his ventilator settings or secretion burden. A portable chest x-ray demonstrates left lower lobe atelectasis versus an infiltrate. So let's pause right here. Dr. Albin, the ICU team is concerned for VAP, but so based on the story so far, does this patient have any risk factors for ventilator-associated pneumonia?
2: Sam, I'm so glad you asked me. I'm going to answer that in one second, but I, the first thing to, I think, say when you're just thinking about whether someone has VAP or not is just acknowledging the fact that it's, it's a real disaster to try and diagnose There's no good confirmatory test for it, and it's instead based on this amalgamation of nonspecific clinical, radiographic, and microbiologic symptoms and signs, none of which perform very well when you use autopsy-based histopathology as a reference gold standard. Um, So it's important to, whenever you're considering this, even if you think it's a silly question and VAP is very unlikely, it's important to kind of approach it with a, I guess for lack of a better phrase, a sense of diagnostic humility. And also understand that you might not feel good about making the diagnosis even if you are going to treat it. Because VAP is such a challenging thing to diagnose, it, we really should be doing this in all of medicine, but it makes, I think, the most sense to kind of approach it from a Bayesian standpoint. And the first step in that is to ask yourself what the pretest probability of VAP is. And that ties into what the pathophysiology of VAP is and what kind of risk factors folks have for VAP. So in general, the prevalence of VAP, depending on who you're looking at in the ICU, is anywhere between like five to 20% for folks who require invasive mechanical ventilation for more than 48 hours. That's a pretty wide range. And that's for generally standard risk patients. If you look in folks with ARDS, folks who require uh, ECMO, folks with really, really, really bad structural lung disease like advanced COPD, and then trauma patients, particularly inhalational burn patients, or folks who have uh, intracranial hemorrhage, the rates are much higher, anywhere between 30 to 40% in terms of... Uh, VAP prevalence. And that's probably because all of those conditions facilitate uh, the development of VAP for a variety of reasons, but also just because it's even more challenging to diagnose VAP in those kind of patients. So that's kind of generally speaking where I start. I asked myself, is this a super high-risk patient with one of those kind of high-risk features, or is this a quote-unquote kind of standard risk patient? And this would be a standard risk patient, right? So you'd kind of ballpark a pretest probability of VAP in the 5 to maybe 20% range. And then you kind of got to ask yourself, where on that spectrum do they fall? And for that, you can really think about what the risk factors for VAP are. Um, Pathophysiologically, almost all pneumonia fundamentally is aspiration pneumonia. There's this really famous outbreak investigation from uh, a series of uh, institutional VAP cases uh, that were caused by pseudomonas. And it was traced back to contaminated green food coloring that was used in hospital food. And for some reason that has always stuck with me throughout my medical education, just to emphasize exactly where the germs come from that cause VAP, uh, fundamentally to get VAP, you got to get colonized with bugs, probably in your stomach, and then it moves up in your oropharynx. It establishes itself on biofilm on an endotracheal tube. And then because the host defenses in your lungs are impaired because of sedation and other stuff that's already affecting the lungs it's really easy for a sufficient volume or a bio burden of gunk that's just sitting on the endotracheal tube to make its way down into the alveolar space and then at that point your immune system gets really pissed off at it and that's what causes pneumonia so if you think about that entire kind of sequence there's a couple things that you need um, pathophysiologically and from a risk factor standpoint to get VAP. so one is you need to have a conduit into your lungs for bugs to get in there. So far and away, the, uh, the biggest um, risk factor for VAP is how long you've been on invasive mechanical ventilation. Every day adds to the risk of VAP. The per-day risk seems to peak at about five days. So I think you said this patient's on day three. That's, that's not a terribly long time, and I wouldn't count that as, as a really significant, huge risk factor for VAP here. The second is... Um, do they have risk factors for being colonized in their gut or oropharynx with nasty stuff? So that's things that decrease the acidity of your stomach, like H2 blockers, for example, or any antecedent antibiotics. And I'm, I'm not sure whether we established that this patient was on antibiotics or not. My guess is they are because they're in distributive shock. Um, but this is not a terribly long amount of uh, antimicrobial exposure. And then the third kind of bucket for a VAP risk factor is what's the aspiration risk? So uh, is the person sedated, or do they have an impaired level of consciousness that would facilitate migration of organisms past the normal kind of pulmonary airway defense mechanisms? Have they been re-intubated for any reason uh, that would also cause a decreased amount of sedation, or excuse me, a decreased level of consciousness that would facilitate movement of germs from up here in the proximal airways down to the lower airways and into the alveolar space. So I think overall, there's really not a ton here. Uh, This patient had a subdural hematoma, which maybe might classify as an intracranial bleed, but it's not the kind of one that's usually studied in VAP trials. And I think there's not a huge... uh, amount here to suggest that this patient has a high pretest probability for VAP. I'd probably put it somewhere between like 10 to 15% to start off with.
1: Okay, so pretest probability is somewhat low, 10 to 15%. But I'm an ICU resident, and I don't want to miss VAP if it's there. So the primary team in this case really wants to investigate further a VAP diagnosis. So far, they have a white blood cell count, a procalcitonin level, in one portable x-ray. Let's pause again. Dr. Alban, what are some of the diagnostic challenges to diagnosing
2: VAP? So we mentioned this before, but you know, there's no reliable confirmatory test for VAP. If you take like the most seasoned intensivists and you ask them to review folks who meet clinical trial criteria for enrollment in VAP studies, right? Like gunk on a chest X-ray and a couple of different signs to indicate that the gunk is infectious in origin. And then you autopsy all those patients if and when they die. Even in that circumstance, you're only going to be right about two thirds of the time. So it's, it's, it's a diagnosis that's premised on all these highly non-specific findings. And then on the flip side there's a huge penalty to missing the diagnosis. We know that there's a mortality penalty if you don't give appropriate early empiric antibiotics for VAP. So again, it's, it's just a really challenging thing to navigate. I think the best way of, of kind of thinking about operationalizing different clinical signs and symptoms and tests is to just think through what the actual clinical definition of VAP is and then think about what limitations that offers or what kind of benefits that affords. So if you look at the IDSA ATS consensus definition for VAP, it basically is something along the lines of a new and persistent infiltrate on chest imaging and then evidence that the infiltrate is infectious in origin of some kind, meaning white count, fever, purulent secretions, and or hypoxia of some kind. So, Let's break that into two buckets. You have your radiographic criteria and then your clinical criteria. So from a radiographic standpoint, radiographic stuff does not (laughs) ever help that much in VAP. It sounds like a great idea, right? But the reality is you can hallucinate a lower lobe infiltrate on almost any ICU patient, right? Just because they're getting portable films and there's all this other crap going on with them, So from a clinically operational standpoint, it's just never terribly that helpful. If there is absolutely nothing new on your assessment of a chest radiograph, that has um, a sensitivity that is pretty darn good. It approaches 80, 90%. You'll see a series of cases where people were chest x-ray negative and then CT positive. That certainly can happen. And there's, I guess, this idea that under-resuscitated people might have kind of a radiographically quiescent infiltrate that then blooms after they get fluid resuscitated. But to me, that's always been a little bit of voodoo and never been kind of confirmed in any rigorous sense. So what, what is helpful about chest imaging? So there are two specific signs on a chest x-ray where if you see them, you can actually be pretty darn confident that it likely represents VAP. One is an air bronchogram. Uh, So if that's seen, that generally means you should probably treat the person for VAP. That has a very high positive likelihood ratio. The other is called fissure abutment. So uh, your lung has fissures, which separate different lobes. And if you have a whole bunch of pus filling up the alveolar space, that kind of extends right to almost like the fence between neighboring houses of uh the limit of the lobe itself it'll kind of create a nice straight line uh, which is called a fissure abutment so if you see either of those two things those are pretty specific for vap the problem is they're rarely rarely seen right um and generally speaking what we're dealing with is a lot of just lower lobe gunk that could be atelectatic or is in the exact same space that aspirated pathogens migrate to within the lungs there's some data that a chest ct can help refine the diagnosis for radiographically equivocal cases on chest x-ray so there have been a couple studies of this where if you have a a chest x-ray that looks kind of diagnostically equivocal one of these atelectasis or a retrocardiac opacity versus pneumonia and you get a chest ct that that can be helpful, both in terms of the, the distribution of the airspace disease, but also if you actually measure um, the Hounsfeld units of um, the infiltrate itself, uh, that can help to differentiate between pneumonia versus atelectasis. Atelectasis is really just collapsed lungs, so it's more dense than pneumonia, where the airspace is still actually kind of stented open by pus. Uh, I've never also found that terribly clinically useful, particularly because the patients that you're called to see with this are often not stable enough to get chest CTs. So in general, I don't think radiographic criteria are terribly helpful uh, unless you're dealing with something at one of the extremes. There's a giant air bronchogram or the person has a totally pristine chest X-ray. I think those two things help you, but otherwise it's not the most clinically informative piece of information. And then the second piece of information that you're looking for to satisfy IDSA-ATS criteria is is clinical supporting information that that suggests that that gunk that you saw on chest x-ray is infectious in origin. And this is really equally fraught. So if you actually look at the positive likelihood ratios of things that are in the IDSA-ATS diagnostic criteria like fever, white count. Purulent secretions, they're really, they barely move the needle. So let's say that this patient, let's, let's say for example that they had, we'll estimate a 15% pretest probability of VAP here, right? Um, and you have a fever and a white count. A fever changes the pre to post test probability by about 2 to 3%. A white count changes the pre to post test probability. By about three to four percent, so you really haven't moved that much. Purulent secretions change things about three or four percent, and hypoxia itself changes something about one to two percent when you start from that area. So none of these things by themselves, or even in aggregate, significantly move the needle that much, um, which is really, really, really frustrating. Some people. Uh, in just my anecdotal experience, even though it's not recommended in guidelines anymore, use the clinical pulmonary infection score, the CPIS, to try and quantify the likelihood of VAP diagnosis. You can find it on MDCalc. It basically goes through everything we just talked about and creates a summative score, and a score greater than six uh, is supposed to incent treatment. That's also not terribly sensitive or specific in terms of ascertaining a diagnosis of VAP. But if you ever want to play around with it, it kind of helps give you a sense of all the things that we clinically consider and try and combine to ascertain a diagnosis of VAP. So here I would probably say that nothing has really moved the needle a tremendous amount. Um, you have a not terribly high pretest probability of VAP, and you have... What was it? An isolated fever and a leukocytosis three days into a condition that by itself can precipitate a systemic inflammatory response and cause the exact same things. And aside from equivocal changes on a chest x-ray, you don't have anything that's really localizing this to the lungs. So I think like you are in many, many circumstances in clinical practice, none of this information is actually terribly that helpful in ascertaining a diagnosis of VAP. And so the question becomes, is there anything else that you can do to help yourself out? And I I think this is probably where we're headed, but, you know, you can culture people. And you can use that to perhaps help you move the needle one way or another. Um, There are two things I wanted to just address really briefly about VAP diagnosis. One is that I think there is some confusion about the NHSN CDC criteria for VAP, or what used to be called VAP, and then what we use in clinical practice to diagnose VAP. So we just discussed what we use in clinical practice to diagnose VAP. For hospital performance reporting and infection prevention purposes, rates of VAP, are of significant interest within ICUs and institutions as a whole. And so the CDC and NHSN have operationalized a definition to kind of objectively or more objectively capture the frequency of events that could be VAP. And they call these things ventilator associated events. It's basically a sustained worsening in uh, ventilatory settings over a certain period of time. And that could be caused by a whole bunch of different things, ARDS, edema, atelectasis, and VAP. But that is a completely different way of thinking of uh, and defining VAP than what you will actually use at the bedside. So that's number one. The second thing that I think is useful to to talk about with VAP is we just kind of went over how terribly unhelpful everything is to diagnose it and how diagnostically unsatisfying it is. Uh, I I don't think we have a very big problem diagnosing VAP. We have a problem getting it right, but we don't there's not a lot of people that you get consulted on in the ICU who have been febrile for a couple of days and the team hasn't even considered App, right more likely than not you get called as an id consultant and they're asking you for how to interpret a culture and so because there's not a huge like epidemic of of vap going undiagnosed right i think what's instructive more than asking yourself how you can rule in vap is are there any kind of tricks or life hacks that you can use to rule it out and i have four I guess I'll call them life hacks that I sometimes try to use uh, to help move me off the ledge of feeling like I need to treat literally everything as VAP. And I'm going to go through them now. Number one, HAP and VAP take a long time to resolve. And what that means is if someone has a respiratory decompensation that normalizes within 24 hours, that is almost by definition, never pneumonia. It's far more likely to be aspiration pneumonitis, a mucus plug, flash pulmonary edema, a whole bunch of other stuff. But we routinely treat these patients like they have pneumonia and assign them to these these extensive courses of antibiotics. So while you can't know from the very outset whether someone has pneumonia, if you follow them for 24 to 48 hours, and the entire reason that you were concerned in the first place is gone within 24 hours, you should feel okay about not treating those patients. The median time to clinical stability in HAPVAP clinical trials is about four to five days. And I think all of us have treated pneumonia patients who can take like more than 72 hours even to defervesce. So anything that normalizes quickly within 24 hours does not, generally speaking, need to be treated as VAP. That's number one. Number two, there is a heck of a lot of pan-culturing that goes on within ICUs. So there's this kind of packaged workup for in response to a fever or a new leukocytosis, which is, you know, we wouldn't do this to people who are like walking into our clinic, but because they're sedated and they have tubes in like every orifice in their body, we think we should just kind of go spurlunking in each one and grab a culture from each, right? Um and the reality is if you have a new fever or a new white count, but there's nothing to localize it to the lungs, nothing that's, you know, fulminantly blossomed on chest imaging. There's no purulent secretions and there's no worsening in a meaningful way of the person's ventilator requirements. The post-test probability after factoring in a fever or a white count is incredibly low for pneumonia. And so unless the person has existing ARDS or is on ECMO or in circulatory shock, I do not really respect pan-cultures, and I don't think you should either. Again, if someone is sick, it's a very different story, right? But for someone who is clinically stable, a pan-culture, I don't think, if the test shouldn't have been ordered in the first place, why use it? That's two. Number three is the entire concept of purulent secretions in the modern era of medicine is just shockingly subjective right so first of all the physicians who are ordering tests and prescribing antibiotics they never see the secretions right it's the nurses or respiratory therapists who are seeing them so that's number one it's 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 essentially a game of telephone when the description of secretions gets back to the physician so what you really 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 need to do is you shouldn't take at face value that someone has increased secretions. You should go talk to the nurse or a respiratory therapist taking care of the patient. And you should actually ask them, what's going on? What does it look like? How much are you getting out? How frequently are you having to suction? And ICU nurses and respiratory therapists have a wealth of experience that many of us might never achieve when managing critically ill patients and can give you really valuable insights into what they actually think things look like and what might be going on. There is, there, excuse me, there are like a bajillion reasons for people to have increased secretions that have nothing to do with pneumonia. So we often get, for example, transfers to our hospital from elsewhere and we put them on humidified ventilator circuits. That mobilizes secretions in and of itself. So a change in ventilator circuitry to a more humidified circuit can mobilize secretions. Folks, after they're convalescing from their illness, who are getting fluid taken off and diuresed and are waking up from sedation more so, are starting to get their cough back. They're starting to concentrate secretions. And so when folks are actually convalescing from critical illness, they can really start to mobilize secretions as well. And then there's a whole bunch of non-purulent things that people will just cough up when they're on a ventilator that do not represent pneumonia. So life hack number three is talk directly to a nurse or respiratory therapist about what secretions look like. And then lastly, life hack number four, we're going to talk about, I assume cultures in a second, but cultures like everything in life are not a binary thing, right? There is actually a wealth of information on respiratory cultures. Uh, if you're getting semi-quantitative or even or quantitative respiratory cultures, the bio-burden of bacteria is actually really important. You can have just eensy-weensy bits of bacteria that are recovered that are dramatically different in their clinical implications than someone who has a supra, uh, a high concentration, excuse me, of uh, bacterial bio-burden in a respiratory culture. Similarly, Uh, The gram stain on respiratory cultures is, I think, one of the most underutilized clinical tools we have in ventilator-associated pneumonia. In relatively moderate or low-prevalence settings for VAP, which is what many potential VAP cases are, uh, a negative gram stain has an exquisite negative predictive value for VAP that approaches about 95%. So I don't ever use that independent of a clinical picture But when you're aggregating everything together, a negative gram stain and a sub-quantitative, even if positive, culture can also be reasons to kind of move you off the ledge in someone who is not terribly ill in not treating that. So those are are my four life hacks. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
1: That's great. No, that's really great.
2: So you
1: say this to the primary team and you convince them. They... They say that the likelihood of VAP is low, and they are going to pursue alternative diagnoses or reasons for this person to be febrile. But over the next 48 hours, things start to change. Uh, The FIO2 goes from like 45 to 65%. They talk directly to respiratory therapy and the bedside nurse who say that they think secretions are starting to become more purulent. So they come back to you, and they say, we don't want to just pan culture without any reason. We instead want a laser-focused respiratory culture. And they ask you, "What should, like, how can we best get a respiratory culture that's going to be valuable to us?
2: Well, first, let me just say, this has literally never happened, but it, it would be awesome if someone <laughs> called ID to ask about obtaining a respiratory culture. It sounds really great. Um, but in this fantasy land, here's what I would say. I would say. <laughs> it's so I, true. I know, right? Um, well, because th- this is what happens. You know, it's it's a very different approach to VAP when you're an ID consultant rather than a frontline intensivist, right? Because you're coming in as basically a relief pitcher um, to help kind of clarify everything that's been going on and and help kind of chart a way forward. But you're not actually there when all of the chaos is happening physiologically and no one knows what the hell is going on, right? Um, So in terms of the best way to test microbiologically for VAP, if you look at consensus guidelines, the European guidelines, the international guidelines say you should BAL, people. You should stick a catheter deep in the lungs and get a distal lung specimen. The American guidelines Say the opposite; they do not preference distal lung sampling, and so something from the proximal lungs, for example, an endotracheal aspirate, is sufficient. And the reason that they say that in the American guidelines is because there have been a couple of pretty well done prospective trials comparing invasive to non-invasive lung sampling, and when it comes to hard clinical outcomes like mortality or ventilator dependence there's really not any clear benefit to doing one way or the other. I don't totally agree with that approach. Um, And I think most people, when you're really considering VAP, unless there's a contraindication to getting a BAL, like severe hypoxemia or some predisposition to bleeding based on platelets or INR, or unless someone has a really fresh anastomotic site from like a thoracic, major thoracic surgery, I think most people should get a BAL. That's for a couple of reasons. One is there's not, you know, you don't have to do a formal bronchoscopy to do a BAL anymore. You can do a non-bronchoscopic BAL at many places that are performed by respiratory therapists or intensivists. This is what we affectionately refer to as a mini BAL. So you're not looking with the camera down uh, to where you're going, but you can direct a catheter to one side of the lung or another, squirt some saline in there, lavage the area, and then pull it back up. So why why do that if there's clearly no hard clinical benefit to doing so? Um, so I think it's actually an untapped antimicrobial stewardship tool. And I feel like we've kind of ceded this to the intensivists and, and haven't kind of reclaimed this as our own. So number one distal lung sampling is actually more specific in ascertaining whether or not someone does or doesn't have pneumonia than proximal lung sampling. It has an increased specificity of about roughly 10%. So not a lot, but that is something. So just in ascertaining whether or not you even have the correct diagnosis, it is a better test if you can get it. That's number one. Number two is that it also does a better job of actually telling you not just whether or not someone has pneumonia but if they do what germ and particularly what susceptibility profile for that germ is at play so there's this really old I love old medical studies where you never had to consider like ethics or or IRB, You know, they would just be like, we went out on the street and shot a bunch of people in the leg. And then we decided to see what their blood looked like. So there's this this old but really cool study where they took a baboon ARDS model. And so they induced ARDS in all these baboons, which first of all, like, how do you do that? That's pretty impressive. Um, But then what they did is they sampled the respiratory tract of those baboons with ARDS everywhere along it. So they went in the back of the throat, they took endotracheal aspirates, and then they went all the way down to the pseudoalveolar space and lavaged that area. And then um, they euthanized the baboons, very sad. And they took their lung tissue and just ground it up and cultured that. And what they found is that you recover similar quantities of germs from the proximal and distal respiratory tract. You're not finding necessarily more germs in the distal respiratory space than you are in the proximal lungs. But the concordance between what was recovered was dramatically better between distal lung specimens and proximal lung specimens. And so I think for, for things like pseudomonas or some of these non-fermenting gram negative pathogens in people with really structurally abnormal lungs... A lot of these are polyclonal infections. And if you're trying to determine the best antibiotic to use, I think a distal lung specimen not just helps you tell whether or not someone has VAP, but it also probably gives you the best shot at identifying the best drug from a PKPD standpoint at treating the infection. And then the last reason I think that getting distal lung specimens is generally a better idea if you can swing it than proximal lung specimens, is they actually have a whole bunch of other diagnostically useful information on them. So you can send a BAL cell count and differential uh, on uh, a BAL specimen if you'd like. Uh, In uninfected lungs, macrophages are really the predominant cell that's found. And the hallmark of pneumonia is an alveolar neutrophilia. So, uh, if you have a PMN percentage of greater than 50% on a BAL cell count and diff, that's not terribly specific. But if you have less than 50% PMNs, that's actually a great way to confidently rule out pneumonia. Kind of like um, pyuria on a urinalysis. And we never do this routinely, but I think it's, it's actually a very promising diagnostic stewardship tool within pneumonia in general and ventilator, ventilator-associated pneumonia in particular. Even if you do recover bacteria from a BAL, you got to keep in mind that that tells you how to treat pneumonia. It doesn't necessarily tell you whether someone has pneumonia. So the positive predictive value for a positive BAL culture is only about 65 to 70% for ascertaining pneumonia. So it's helpful, but again, there's nothing that you can hang your hat on to definitively say one way or another whether something is pneumonia. And really, the way that you're deciding to treat is premised upon, one, what you think the likelihood or the probability is of pneumonia. And we kind of walk through, starting with a pretest probability and then a post-test probability. Um, but then... Two, arguably the bigger thing that you have to consider is how sick is the patient. So although hypoxia and circulatory shock do not really help you refine the likelihood of diagnosis, they really change the imperative of treating, right? And so your threshold for treating someone, even with a much lower pretest probability of pneumonia, is much, much lower in folks who have really nasty features of critical illness.
1: Well, let's break it down right there. You convince the team to go in and do a mini BAL. I'm so Um, proud
2: of myself. That's awesome. (laughs) This is a great example of collaboration, multidisciplinary collaboration (laughs) in healthcare. God, what a success story. They
1: do a mini BAL and they see like a 75% uh, neutrophil predominance in the cell count and diff. The gram stain comes back with gram negative rods. And then a day later, they see pseudomonas growing in the culture. And the primary team decides that this is convincing enough that they want to treat. And they go back to you and they say, how exactly we should be, should we be treating ventilator-associated pneumonia?
2: I, I'm I'm just touched by how much trust that this imaginary team has placed in me. <laughs> um, there's a couple different ways of answering that. So one is what is is just differentiating empiric from definitive treatment of VAP. The second is... What is there like a preferred agent or set of agents that you should use for VAP? And then I think the third question is how long do you treat VAP for? So I'll try and tackle each of those pretty expediently because I think I've been talking too too much already. Um, So number one, empiric antibiotics for VAP. So what we know from retrospective data, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is there's there's a recognized mortality penalty for not giving the right antibiotics early on for VAP. Kind of analogous to sepsis care, right? And in places that have a relatively high burden of drug-resistant pathogens, the general idea is you should try and be upfront, very aggressive at guessing what you're treating to maximize the probability that you're going to be covering the responsible pathogen. And then you equally aggressively try to pull back and narrow your therapy 48 to 72 hours later once you have cultures to guide things, or even based on a recent RCT, Gram stain to guide things. Um, So every institution is different, but in general you want, if you're practicing in a place that sees sick patients, a lot of folks are gonna get empirically anti-MERSA coverage and then often two anti-pseudomonal agents, usually in the form of some beta-lactam that's institutionally preferred, and maybe an aminoglycoside. Definitive therapy is a totally different issue. There have been a bajillion different studies comparing this and that agent for definitive treatment of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and pneumonia trials are really, really challenging to conduct, and I think the take-home point is, while you can find maybe subtle differences in like linazolid versus VANC for MRSA or combination therapy for pseudomonal VAP in in septic or critically ill patients in circulatory shock or this or that or the other antibiotic for a different bug, it probably in most cases matters way 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 more how you're dosing the antibiotic rather than the specific antibiotic you pick. So if you isolate Pseudomonas, you have a susceptibility profile, you can choose the best agent to treat it with as long as you're being thoughtful about how you're dosing it and or preferably working with a really good ID pharmacist or ICU pharmacist at the best way to dose it. And that means Uh, things like, you know, extending infusions for beta-lactams in critically ill patients and considering higher doses for certain agents. But as long as you're being thoughtful, it really probably doesn't matter for all comers which drugs you're actually using, per se. There's a couple exceptions to that. You shouldn't use aminoglycoside monotherapy. You shouldn't use tigacycline monotherapy. Like, who does that? But, you know, cool. Um, or DAPTO. Um, but with the exception of those agents... Is, again, as long as you're thoughtfully dosing things, the agent you select probably is less important. And then there's the whole issue of like how long you treat VAP for, right? Um, people used to treat VAP for a really long time. And then in 2003, there was a big RCT that was done in France. And they randomized patients to 8 days of antibiotics or 15 days of antibiotics. And when they looked at things like rates of mortality... Ventilator dependence, uh, organ dysfunction-free days. There really were no differences in outcomes between the two groups. There was a big sticking point with that study, though, which is in a subgroup analysis of patients who had VAP caused by non-fermenting gram-negative bacteria like Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, Stenotrophomonas, there was a statistically significant, or at least something approaching statistical significance, an increased rate of recurrent pneumonia in the group that was allocated to shorter course therapy. And so for a long time, there was this operating suggestion that if you isolated Pseudomonas, you probably should treat it for two weeks. And that shifted um, six or seven years ago when the IDSA and ATS came out with their new guidelines and said, doesn't matter what the pathogen is, in most cases, seven days of antibiotics is fine. There was a new study that came out this past year which caused a big perfuf- kerfuffle on uh, Twitter, uh, which was a study of pseudomonal VAP. And I hope, I, I want to say this correctly, the study was massively underpowered to actually answer the research question that they were hoping to do. But what they actually found in that study was that shorter course therapy was not non-inferior to longer course therapy when using a composite outcome of death or recurrent pneumonia for pseudomonal VAP in particular. So I think a lot of people feel stuck on the fence for this particular group of bugs about the best way to approach antimicrobial treatment durations. So the way that I think about it right now is this. I think number one, we need to learn more about how to individualize therapy in VAP. But until we can do that, I think, number one, people that you're confident, A, that they don't have VAP for reasons we already mentioned, and B, that are not in circulatory shock or have ARDS or are on ECMO, i those patients probably don't need to be treated, and, and I don't treat them. Um, there are some really clever studies that have been done evaluating quote-unquote ultra-short-course therapy for VAP in clinically stable patients, meaning ultra-short-course therapy, meaning one to three days. Um, And so there is a little bit of data to suggest that if you really don't think the patient has VAP and they're not super ill, that you should just probably stop their VAP-directed antibiotics to begin with. That's not the case here, but I don't autopilot assign people to seven days of antibiotics for everything. For the seven days or longer question, though, I think about what were the limitations of the trial in question. So people who advocate for seven days of antibiotic therapy, when they look at that trial data, as they say, there were huge issues with like inferring anything about recurrent pneumonia there. So number one, we don't know what the clinical significance of recurrent pneumonia is in these trials. If they developed recurrent pneumonia, but it didn't prolong ventilator dependence, it didn't lead to increased mortality, was this really actually recurrent pneumonia, or did these folks in the setting of aggressive surveillance as part of a clinical trial just find residual germs hanging out in the respiratory tract of some of these patients? And that's particularly important because even though this trial was technically a blinded trial, folks were unblinded at eight days, which is when the difference in treatments actually started, right? There's also this concern that well, if you're being treated with a longer course of antibiotics, you actually have a shorter amount of time to recur. And so your time at risk for recurrence if you're getting a short course of therapy might be longer than those with longer courses of therapy and so that that kind of compounds things too. I I think that for a lot of patients with legitimate, really bad pseudomonal VAP, that shorter courses of treatment probably do lead to higher recurrence. I think there's enough data at this point that that seems reasonable to surmise. How important that is to counterbalance against the risk of excessive antibiotics is an entirely different question, though. And so I don't obviously routinely give more than seven or eight days of antibiotics for someone with pseudomonal VAP. I do extend therapy for people who were excluded from these trials. And I think it's important to know who was excluded from the trial. So if you actually look at that study from 2003, immunocompromised patients were excluded. Patients, they used a much older severity of illness score than like SOFA or Apache or other stuff that we use now, but really, really sick patients were also excluded. So you can go on to MD calc and play with the SAPS two score and just click buttons to see what it takes to get you above a score of 65. And what you'll probably find is that a lot of the patients that you take care of would not have qualified for that trial because they were too sick. Patients were also excluded from the trial if the team thought that they were going to die pretty quickly. They were excluded from the trial if they were DNR. And they were excluded from the trial if they received empiric antibiotics, which did not cover the responsible pathogen, meaning that they basically weeded out a whole heck of a lot of folks with multidrug-resistant pathogens. So I consider treating people for longer, if they have some combination of the following factors, one, immunocompromised status, two, they are sick as snot, meaning multipressor-dependent circulatory shock, ARDS kind of phenotypes, uh, on ECMO, stuff like that. Three, if they have a really delayed clinical response to treatment, and I think that pneumonia is responsible for that, meaning if they have not defervesced meaningfully after about 72 hours. Um, And then folks who have had multiply recurrent pneumonias, especially from something like Pseudomonas, I consider extending treatment to about 14 days. Um, I don't do it for any single one of those things, but I kind of use those as kind of a list in the back of my mind. And if folks check a couple different boxes, I will extend treatment in those situations. Um, I think the last thing to just think about from a treatment standpoint is, is what the role of inhaled antibiotics are in VAP, which I can touch on really quickly. Um, inhaled antibiotics are a really attractive idea because they have a really large therapeutic window in VAP. So you can deliver if you nebulize or aerosolize antibiotics, you can deliver like elephant tranquilizer doses to the alveolar space with relatively little systemic absorption. You can get systemic absorption, but not as much as obviously if you're infusing it directly into the bloodstream. So it's a really attractive idea because you have this massive therapeutic window with which to kind of operate. The problem is, if you think about what pneumonia is, it's pus in the alveolar space. And if you use um, nuclear medicine studies to kind of radio label these inhaled antibiotics in pneumonia patients, what you'll find is that they don't get into the lung areas that you want them to get into because they're just chock full of pus, right? And so when you actually look at clinical trials of inhaled antibiotics, they do not seem to be beneficial at all. There's retrospective data and a meta-analysis that suggests that inhaled antibiotics um, may be beneficial for folks with multi-drug or extensively drug-resistant gram-negative pathogens. And so if I have a patient who does not have a giant low bar socked in pneumonia and has had multiple recurrent infections, and I'm running out of um, antibiotics to use to treat something like Pseudomonas. I will uh, use um, adjunctive inhaled antibiotics in that case, uh, but that is a very rare situation. Uh, and generally speaking, their routine use is really not encouraged at all.
1: Great. Dr. Alvin, thank you so much for such a thoughtful overview of ventilator associated pneumonia.
2: Thank you, Sam.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We covered a lot of different things. You know, you started by talking about VAP risk factors. You went into how challenging the diagnosis can be and how so much of what we use clinically, especially in the ICU, may or may not actually help you move the needle on diagnosis all that much. You talked to us about how to obtain the best type of respiratory sample and the uses that it can have outside of just the, the culture at the very end. And then you talked about treatment. Are there any final things you would like to share?
2: I think uh one of the really fun things about ID in addition to taking care of patients uh, that like the types of patients we see and the types of conditions we see is that we just get to interface with like so many other different kinds of doctors and learn from them and uh, I think for something like VAP befriending or working closely and really just actually talking to intensivists who are taking care of the patients along with the nurses and respiratory therapists that we just talked about is critically important in trying to formulate the safest and smartest plan for people. And that, I mean, that's true for kind of anything that you're approaching clinically, but I think that's particularly useful in VAP. So picking up the phone or stopping someone on rounds, I think is, is an undervalued thing in VAP care and and, and, in clinical care in general.
0: They are also the easiest team to find because you always know where they are because they're on the unit. <laughs>
2: Although there is always like an intern that's like hiding, you know, in the, in the closet somewhere. But yeah, you don't need and to that's talk usually someone explicitly. you're... <laughs> <I'm> sorry, Sam. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you both so much. Uh, you know, I think sometimes pneumonia is a diagnosis that we kind of take for granted and often don't take the time or have the time to step back and talk through the underlying principles. I encourage everyone to make sure you listen to all four episodes in this series. So episodes 60 through 63 on healthcare associated infections. Don't forget to check out the website, febralpodcast.com, where you'll find the consult notes, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.